Hello, and welcome to the Dickio Podcast. My name is Richard Owens. I'm your host. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a maladjusted history of white. By looking at a maladjusted history of white, my objective is to briefly summarize the history of whiteness. Uh, and I believe that this kind of history is important to tell. For me, the retelling of the history of whiteness on its own is an ethical act of defiance against the status quo. Uh, it's a way to stand against the economic, political, and religious institutions that have explicitly and implicitly created racial barriers here in the United States. Uh, and my hope is that this conversation will be an ethical prescription for change. Perhaps through this conversation and others like it, uh, we'll find a way to reconcile and close the color gap in America. However, So, before we begin, I, I believe it's important for, to give you a, a glimpse into my personal background. Uh, this way, you can have an understanding of who I am and the context and where I come from and, and where I speak from. Uh, so, for that, I, you know, I grew up poor, white, in a small town in Oklahoma. The oldest of three children, raised by my single mother. Um, I started working when I was eight in the hay fields, and then around age 12, I started working under the table to help the family. Um, I joined the Marine Corps and left home at 18 um, to go to boot camp. I spent eight years in the Marine Corps, uh, stationed out at Camp Pendleton, did three deployments, uh, and towards the end of my uh, eight years, I got married and remained in Southern California. Uh, at 28, I became a father. Um, two years later, uh, divorced. Then uh, a couple years after that, I remarried and became a father again and again. So that now at age 40, I have been married twice, I have three children, and I still live in Southern California. Uh, all three of my children are biracial, as their mothers are Latina. Um, and then also, I, I took a six-year break and got back into the military, uh, so I've served eight years in the Army Reserves as well. Um, I've earned both a bachelor's and master's degree in education with an emphasis on teaching the social sciences. I've taught history at the junior high and high school levels, both in regular history classrooms and AP classes. I'm also pursuing a second master's degree, a master's in divinity, uh, and I've taken several courses on theology, pastoral care, and ethics. And in addition to uh, my personal background and just the brief story there, I also believe it's important to be transparent with you about my, uh, my racist past. So. I have a tattoo of a uh, skull wearing a confederate flag bandana on my chest. I got it when I was 18. I felt it was a representation of me as a good old boy. It's not to say that I was, um, was not ignorant to what it represented or how it could be perceived. I just felt justified because I wasn't using it in a racist way. Um, it, was, uh, it had meaning to me and was not meant to be racist. I also had a Confederate flag in my barracks room, um, and it had a saying on it that said, the South will rise again, and I hung it up as an act of defiance to uh, Latino Marines who hung flags of their nationality up in their rooms. Um, I would loudly play and sing Hank Jr.'s that the South would have won anytime I heard rap music playing. Uh, in fact, I had a stereo, a, a 
system put in my truck just so I could play loud country music um, whenever I heard rap music playing. Uh, and there was a time that whenever Dr. King was mentioned in a conversation, I didn't discuss his words or his position or the way that he helped better society. Instead, I talked about rumors of him being a womanizer. And I questioned his ethics and how could someone who was a womanizer uh, be a person we want to follow um, ethically. Um, I had a Muslim roommate for a little while. And oftentimes when he would start to pray, uh, I would play Pantera or Metallica in my room loud purposefully to di disrupt his prayers. Uh, and on more than one occasion, I actually hit his prayer mat. Um, there was one time uh, in the Marines in Chow Hall, uh, uh, individual and I were uh, talking trash to each other. Um, and uh, he was a black man. And I almost started a, a riot right there in the line at the Chow Hall because I called him boy. Um, and I have used the, uh, the phrase in regarding to affirmative action saying that white males are the most discriminated group in America right now. Um, these are my sins. Um, and, I, and I share them now just to be transparent um, with you. I didn't consider myself racist when I said them. Um, you see, I had, I had black friends, I had brown friends. How could I be racist? Instead, I just felt I was standing up for myself the same way they were. Um, but in reality, I was just, I, I was an ignorant fool. Um, and they say that there are none so blind as those who will not see. The most deluded people are those who choose to ignore what they already know. And that was me. I was blinded by my ignorance. Um, regarding racism, injustice, and hate. And for that, I, uh, I tell you, I'm, I'm just, I'm ashamed. I'm just really ashamed of myself. Um, and for those that I've offended, I, I ask for forgiveness. Um, and for those of you who ask why I'm passionate about civil rights, equality, and tolerance now, this is why. Um, I've, I hope that in being transparent that I can prevent others from making the same mistakes I did um, and definitely my children uh, and I hope to open the eyes of the blind in the same way that my eyes were opened I believe that that healing and reconciliation cannot happen until we come face to face with with our mistakes with our sins um, both corporately and individually I share all of this not to boast or because I'm proud um, but because I am ashamed, um, I have learned, uh, and uh, I hope that in sharing that you understand my background um, and the context and, and why, what I, why I feel that what I'm about to share with you is so important. Um, they say that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, so I share what I've learned, um, and I share hoping that we can... Uh, dismantle the institutions, uh, institution of racism and the systems that support it, um, that we can dismantle and not repeat history. So let's begin. To begin, first thing we need to look at is what is racism. This is my definition of racism. Uh, I believe that racism is a socio-political construct 
created by the elite that uses skin color to control the poor so that the elitist power will never be challenged. Um, that's my definition. And I think if we were to re-examine history from this perspective, we can see how struggles of the poor, regardless of color, uh, were propagated by the powerful for the purpose of wider control. Uh, and we must understand the historical development of racism and whiteness to understand what it means to be white today. And only then can we move forward to repair relationships and break down the institution of racism. And to do this, we need to have a maladjusted approach to history so that we may become the beloved community. What is meant by maladjustment, though? In 1958, uh, Dr. King um, wrote an article titled The Current Crisis in Race Relations. And in this article, Dr. King describes what he means by being uh, maladjusted. Uh, and he asserts that rather than to adjust to evil and unjust mores and social systems, that we should be maladjusted to them. Uh, Dr. King wrote that the salvation of the world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. He challenged people to be maladjusted, like Amos, Lincoln, Jefferson, and Jesus. Dr. King believed that through such courageous maladjustment, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight of man's inhumanity into the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. So in other words, a maladjusted history is one that challenges the status quo. And I would argue that right now the world is in need of such desperate maladjustment. When we look at the development of whites through a historical lens, we begin to see and understand why, why white people see an attack on whiteness as a personal attack. And it's not just a personal attack, it's an attack on their, their patriotism, on their country, on their values and way of life, right? Uh, white is so ingrained into the definition of American that the ethnic and cultural identity of white people has, has been lost. The, uh, the recent development of multiculturalism and the resurgence of ethnic identity will hopefully reconnect white communities with their lost heritage. And uh, perhaps it's in this reconnection that we find a way to reconcile and close the racial color gap in America. Um, in A Testament of Hope, Dr. King states that um, men of the white West, whether they like it or not, have grown up in a racist culture and their thinking is colored by that fact. They've been fed on a false mythology and tradition that binds them to the aspirations and talents of other men. And this false mythology is truer than you may want to admit. If we were to look through uh, a U.S. history textbook, we would see stories of patriotism, perseverance, and pride as the United States um, expanded westward and became exceptional and grew from 13 colonies to uh, 50 states. And it, as our children grow, classes and books on, on Western civilization, um, medieval and European history, world history, these are all written in a similar manner and from similar perspective. Great detail goes in to explain the positive aspects, aspects of victory and expansion, while the negative components of how that was accomplished are minimized or neglected altogether. The lives, civilizations, and people groups that were destroyed uh, on the way to victory are just mere blips on the history of radar. 
History textbooks are generalized in favor of the victor. And because of this, white people see themselves as, as the victor. And since they didn't commit the atrocities and the sins that created the victory, they see no need to repent for those, those mistakes today, even though they have implicitly benefited from the system that was established through these immoral means. So to fully understand race and racism, a thorough examination of history is needed. A maladjusted examination of history is needed. And this examination must be conducted to develop an, an anthropological or ontological explanation of race. And only once we have this type of understanding can we develop a theocentric solution. Because that, uh, Dr. King believed that, and, that, and I also believe that, that the way forward uh, is having a God-centered approach uh, to race relations and, and just to relations with people in general. Um, and so such an understanding is necessary in our multicultural, multi-ethnic, and increasingly volatile society. The minimizing of oppressed, disenfranchised, and marginalized people continues to perpetuate stereotypes uh, while we ignore the underlying issues of racism, discrimination, and policy. Uh, so therefore, we have to correct the trend of glorifying positives and minimizing negatives by examining all aspects of history. And only then can we use the negatives and the positives to make society better for all of humanity. Uh, so a maladjusted history should resemble looking through a kaleidoscope rather than a prism. So let's look at um, some opinions on when race began. Given the age of the human species, uh, one could assert that the concept of race and skin color as a distinction uh, is a relatively new phenomenon. According to George Fredrickson, uh, racist ideologies emerged in the 13th, 14th centuries, uh, but they began with ethnic collective groups trying to eliminate other ethnic collective groups over various differences in religion, not skin color. So uh, this would be tracing um, the ideology of that racist used back to the 13th, 14th centuries. So things to think about here is you have the Spanish Inquisition and you have the uh, Crusades. In the Crusades, you have Christians and Muslims fighting each other for the Holy Land. In the Spanish Inquisition, you have the Catholic Church in Spain wanting to rid Spain of the Jews and the Moors, and the Moors were, were Muslims, and so the uh, a campaign began to, to do that. Um, so th those are things to consider and to think about, possibly research, uh, when we talk about the ideologies that emerged from the 13th, 14th century that begin to to be used as the framework for racism in later, um, later times. Other authors assert that skin color designation coincides with the age of discovery and colonization, um, and still others believe that using color as a process of naming people by race has never been a matter of genealogy or physiology, uh, so much as one as hierarchy by people who were once identified as Catholic, uh, Coruscant, Welsh, Mennonite, Jewish, before they were white. But these people have now been brought up to believe that they are white.
Dr. King used ethnic and regional identifiers such as Irish, Italians, Jews, Polish, and Appalachia uh, when speaking about white people and then also used the general term white to describe the white man, uh, white liberal, etc. Uh, in description of white people. So while this information provides a general understanding, there's still no clear anthropological or ontological explanation as to how people came to be white or how racism uh, came to be institutionalized. And this is why research and conversation is so important. Uh, if we're not able to identify where the problem started, how can we correct the problem today? Since there's no anthropological or ontological beginning to white, uh, I want to start tracing the division of humans by color uh, back to the colonial era of American history. And during this time, we see that the privileged elite of the colonial era perpetuated the idea of skin color superiority uh, by dividing the poor into multiple color groups and then showing preferential treatment to those with white skin. And this division gave poor white people a, a feeling of superiority, while at the same time degrading the status of blacks and reds or indigenous people as um, an uncivilized lesser race, lacking in intelligence and laudable human qualities. So the thought process of the elites was this. If we could keep the poor whites thinking they were better than poor people of color, then they, the elites, could pit poor against poor and enjoy the profits by exploiting all poor people without their knowledge. Now, it, it's important to note that the term white at this point is a reference to the poor, not to the elite. Uh, and I would encourage you to do um, some, some research and, and some understanding on um, the uh, on indentured servitude, on um, early migration and uh, slavery of um, of African Americans or Africans coming to the United States. Um, there's a PBS special, uh, The Making of Slavery. Uh, it it kind of goes into detail on some of these. So I'd encourage you, you know, if you have the chance, uh, you can find the video on YouTube or uh, look up PBS and you can read some of the documents there. Uh, but it gives a more detailed explanation of how this um, process that I just explained. Uh, briefly talks about how that comes to be. So this elitist way of thinking carried itself through the Revolutionary War and found itself woven into the fabric of the Constitution and other early government documents. For example, the Three-Fifths Compromise, uh, whereas an indentured servant was included in the free count, but indigenous people were excluded and slaves were counted as three-fifths a whole person, uh, was necessary to get the slave states to ratify the Constitution. Uh, the, you know, the slave states were worried about um, wanting to make sure that the um, population, that their representation in government was um, based off of population, and so they were not willing to uh, count every slave, uh, and so they counted three-fifths of the slaves um, towards the population. That's where we get the three-fifths compromise here. Um, but we see that the even being able to be considered a, a whole person or a person to be counted was something that was not um, that was not being considered. They weren't they weren't willing to move in that direction. 
Additionally, in the first presidential election, only land-owning white males could vote. And then the Naturalization Act of 1790, immigrants who were free white persons of good character uh, could apply for citizenship of the United States. This act excluded the uh, indigenous populations, indentured servants, slaves, free blacks, women, and Asians. And so uh, it's important to note that uh, free blacks were given and allowed citizenship at, at the state level in certain states, but nationally they um, were not, according to the Naturalization Act of 1790. And then we move into the antebellum period. And this period continued to see the separation of poor by the elite based on the color of a person's skin. And most of the country, the poor whites, were treated just as badly as poor people of color. And in the North, a new, primarily white, Protestant middle class began to emerge. Um, and discrimination in the North was not only limited to color, both black, red, um, but also began to expand to uh, those who were considered yellow at the time, and it included religion and nationality, so Irish Catholics, Italian Catholics, and all of these, um, all of these forms of discrimination can be seen in um, Alt-Cult's Hogan's Alley cartoons. Go out there, research it, R.F. Alt-Cult, O-U-T-C-A-U-L-T, Hogan's Alley cartoons and you'll see the the discrimination against all of these these individuals um, based off of skin color religion and nationality and meanwhile in the south the intra-racial divide within whites was actually greater than the interracial divide between black and white but it's something that's rarely spoken about uh, and perhaps that's because it's easier to see interracial problems than interracial ones uh, but this point is, uh, is highlighted by D.R. Hunley, uh, and he wrote a book in 1860 called Social Relations in Our Southern States. And in this book, he asserted that there were seven categories of, quote, whites in the South. The top of the class was a southern gentleman, while the bottom were poor white trash. And Hunley states that he does not remember ever to have seen in the New England states a similar class as poor white trash. To him, they have undoubtedly the same blood as those who came to the United States from the poor houses and prison cells of Great Britain. Poor white trash are pro-slavery from downright envy and hatred of the black man. The blacks, on their part too, reciprocate the feeling of hatred, at least, uh, at least in look, with ineffable scorn on a poor white man. And this support... Uh, supports a claim by John Campbell 46 years later uh, in which he wrote in the United States the poor whites were encouraged to hate the Negroes because they could be then used to help hold the Negroes in slavery and the Negroes were taught to show contempt for the poor whites because this would increase the hatred between them this race hatred was at first used to perpetuate slavery and is now used to perpetuate white supremacy in politics. And so these readings help us to see that both the poor blacks and the poor whites received similar treatments by the elites of society. 
the key difference is freedom. The poor white was free, while the poor black was a slave. And despite this difference, they were both used against one another, pitted against each other, so that the elite could prosper while keeping their thumb on the poor. Again, we go back to say that um, the poor fought the poor for profits for the elite. And you can see when, when we have a maladjusted history, uh, reading of history, we can see how this, how this plays out. We've just talked about up to um, 1860. I'm not going to go in detail or, or discuss the things uh, from the Civil War uh, because that it doesn't meet with the intent of uh, this podcast. The podcast is to talk about a maladjusted history of white. Um, while the Civil War is important, and I think it's important to understand the difference between um, fighting to defeat slavery and the Emancipation Proclamation and fighting uh, and the argument made by the South, which is that they were defending states' rights. Those are all important to understand, um, but we just don't have the time to go into that. And that, the, that would need to be its own separate dedicated episode. Uh, so what I want to talk about, though, is how uh, is for Reconstruction up to um, World War II, what we start to see is we have the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment uh, giving uh, freeing slaves, uh, allowing them to become citizens and giving, giving um, blacks the right to vote. But what we also see is we see codified um, language, both state and federal level, and then unwritten laws that perpetuate white superiority and white supremacy uh, and this is important to understand that that from the beginning even in the colonial times it was the reason that racism became so dominant was because of this mentality that whites were superior to the other uh, races uh, and again let's remember that race is a social construct it's not um, a genetic one it is um, it is socially constructed, and it's constructed through the ability to believe that one race or one people group is superior to others. Uh, so if we look at black codes, uh, we look at leaders of the Confederacy being pardoned, we look at KKK, we look at poll taxes, uh, voucher systems, and all these other ways that were used to suppress the vote of African Americans. We look at uh, Plessy versus Ferguson and separate but equal. Uh, but then we look outside of just the um, what was being done against African Americans, and we see the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. We see the Immigration Act of 1924. Uh, we see the Executive Order 9066 that FDR passed, which um, allowed the internment of Japanese Americans on U.S. soil. So all of these things, this is to show that um, codifying and legalizing white superiority is not something that that was a one-time thing it didn't happen once and then it just carried over this is an evolution it's something that evolved throughout u.s history this looking at and documenting and saying that that people of color 
are less than, are, are lower uh, superiority, have, have less rights than those who are white. And so I encourage you to look at these um, various ways in which uh, white superiority and supremacy was codified in both uh, official government language and unofficial ways. As we move forward to Reconstruction and through the Civil Rights Movement, uh, we see uh, that classes of whites begin to emerge. Uh, the top class were the, still the white elitists, both in the North and the South, who held uh, political and economic power in their respective regions. Um, a new middle class began to rise, though, uh, and that middle class consisted of Protestant descendants of Northern and Western Europeans. And this new middle class became established business and religious leaders uh, in the North and the South. And then you have the poor. Uh, in the South, you still have the poor white trash, but in the North, a new low class of, uh, of whites and others begin to emerge called the undesirables. Uh, and this lower class of undesirables were primarily immigrants uh, from southern and eastern Europe. At least the, the white undesirables were uh, primarily immigrants from southern and eastern Europe. And the best depiction of this class uh, can be found in the photo, photojournalistic work of Jacob Rees. Uh, that's R-I-I-S. Uh, so in addition to the social classes, you also have unwritten social codes that were developed to maintain a distinction um, between the elite and the poor. In addition to the, the classes that are being developed, uh, we also have westward expansion, which means increased interactions and tensions with the indigenous people and these indigenous, indigenous natives uh, commonly refer to all lighter pigmented humans as white. It didn't matter. Uh, they didn't know ethnic uh, or, or care uh, about the ethnicity of them. They just knew them as the white man. Uh, and then in the South, Jim Crow laws greatly contributed to the term white being applied to all non-colored, regardless of their social class or what part of Euro Europe they originated. Um, from. And then uh, in the north, like I said, we have the, the undesirables. Uh, they weren't all white, uh, but what you did get is um, derogatory nicknames in the north. So um, I'm not going to go into these. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to repeat them, but if you look it up, if you do some research, you'll find, uh, and these nicknames were the equivalent to calling a black uh, person the n-word so for Jews the Irish the Italians and the Asians all of these individuals had derogatory nicknames or slang slurs that they would um, that they would be referred to as and so I, if you want to see the extent of it I encourage you to go look it up um, and then this perpetuation of racial color uh, of of racial distinction uh, with color and ethnic division continued through World War II uh, and the Civil Rights Movement. So a couple of movies that give a good depiction of these are the movie 42 uh, and specifically in the movie 42 you'll see an interaction uh, between uh, um, Jackie Robinson and the coach of an opposing player. I want to say it's the Cincinnati Reds 
don't don't quote me on that. I can't be sure or not a player, uh, a coach. And um, there's an interaction there uh, where the coach just continues to uh, go after um, Jackie Robinson. And then afterwards, he, the coach is being interviewed uh, by some reporters, and and he goes into uh, these. Uh, these derogatory nicknames. So uh, watch that movie or look for that clip if you want to get an understanding of that. Also the movie School Ties. In this School Ties um, you get a young Brandon Fraser, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, uh, to name a few people. Uh, but School Ties is about um, a Jewish boy who is brought into a private white school, Christian school, um, for his ability to play football. Uh, and so again, you get to see a lot of negative sentiments and derogatory nicknames for these ethnic undesirables. Then we move into 1968, and most historians view 1968 as the most tumultuous year in U.S. history, and it marked the beginning of the end for the official civil rights movement. Uh, in reality, the Civil Rights Movement never officially ended, but it has struggled to regain the influence that it once had under Dr. King. And after the Civil Rights Movement, the term white became politicized and came to represent nearly all light-pigmented, fair-skinned individuals regardless of ethnicity. So we see that there is now a shift from ethnic division to just uh, color, uh, skin color, uh, as being the primary motivator for, for race. Uh, racism and ethnic serfs still abound, um, but white ethnicities, which were once discriminated against, gradually find acceptance in society. And so over the next few decades, what we see in the United States is um, beginning in the 70s, uh, and through the 90s, really, uh, we start to see uh, neoconservatives and neoliberals rise in the political ranks and use various political tactics to marginalize uh, the people of color while promoting white Christian morals as the standard for society. And so the alliance among these three groups, neoconservatives, neoliberals, and uh, the moral majority and their reliance on American exceptionalism is not a historical accident. Instead, it is a historical trajectory and it reflects a certain deep undercurrent of U.S. collective ethos. Uh, so what are these three groups? As we look at it, we see that the neoconservatives these individuals focused on using coded language, which uh, could also be termed as, as race-neutral language. So uh, think law and order period, the war on crime, the war on drugs, welfare, super predators, moral failure. Uh, and they use this race-neutral coded language to address race-specific issues, to talk about issues. Um, and what they were hiding behind was segregation, uh, or I'm sorry, what they were hiding with this was their actual um, feelings towards segregation, black power, white supremacy, 
um, how to help the poor. They begin to hide all that by using this race-neutral language. And at the same time, we have neoliberals. And the neoliberals begin promoting universalism, which means that instead of focusing on systemic or race-specific issues, they went colorblind. And they began to focus on developing more general, universal social policies um, that, uh, again, um, think of the 94 uh, omnibus bill, right? This is a very general, universal policy uh, driven to address crime, driven to address, and other policies that came in to address um, welfare, to address poverty. Uh, but in reality, what they were doing is they're, they're kind of hiding behind the language, um, knowing that it is causing more damage to, um, to poor neighborhoods. And most of the populations in those poor neighborhoods are, are people of color. So in addition to these two movements of neoconservatives and, and neoliberals on the political aspect, you also have the moral majority. The moral majority began to mobilize in the 1970s and gained momentum through the 1980s uh, before they um, disbanded. And it was spearheaded uh, by the likes of Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and Paul Weyrich. And the primary goal of this group, the moral majority, is the restoration of the United States as a culturally, hom uh, hom culturally homogenous Christian nation through imposing upon others their white ethnocentric Christian theological and moral views. And so here, it wasn't a specific political movement, but it was a white ethnocentric Christian understanding and, and pushing this forward as the proper theological and moral views. And so if you stood against this, if you uh, w developed a feminist theology, if you developed a liberal theology, if you developed a liberation theology, these were considered apostates, they were considered heretics, and they were not um, accepted by this moral major majority. And so all three of these movements begin to co-opt sayings from the civil rights movement in order to promote their agendas uh, while undoing and cutting achievements that were gained during the civil rights movement. And this combined ideology of, um, of coded, using race-neutral coded language, of uh, promoting a uh, universal general social apology and a white ethnocentric Christian theological uh, and moral view resulted in most Americans becoming insensitive to race issues because the race issue was hinted behind all this stuff. You, you didn't see that it wasn't as blatant as Jim Crow laws where, uh, where segregation and separation was obvious. You had white areas and colored areas. With this new movement, coded language, color blindness, and morality were all uh, um, were all categories in which they hid the underlying um, issues on each of these was racism, but they hid their racist agenda behind their coded language, colorblindness, and, and morality. 
And a good example of this and, and how the language from the Civil Rights Movement was co-opted to promote colorblindness uh, and dismantle social programs can be found um, in the way of Dr. King's words. And you know, Dr. King said, you know, I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And by appropriating these words to focus on character rather than color, these triune alliances of conservatives, liberals, and moral majority were able to defend their systematic unraveling of social programs that were designed to help the poor. They distorted the meaning behind Dr. King's words to say that people of color should not be afforded any special privileges, that programs should not be based on the color of someone's skin. Uh, they ignored socioeconomic factors, redistricting, police brutality, and lack of school funding, just to name a few issues, uh, that also that, that contributed to all of uh, the need for these programs. They ignored that and said, you know what? No. Character is what matters. Not these socioeconomic factors, uh, not the fact that we keep redistricting um, to control the votes, not uh, the um, the insensitive and sometimes brutal policies of, of police towards in their war on crime and their war on drugs uh, or the lack of school funding those that 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 has nothing to do with holding you back you should uh, are should be able to take advantage of the same opportunities that white people and, and other people of non-color have or people who live in more affluent neighborhoods they didn't understand why these uh, people of color who were born into, into generational poverty, uh, why couldn't they take advantage of some? And so the ability for these ideologies to transcend social classes resulted in new cleverly disguised methods of racism and privilege um, that began to emerge. Consequently, various distinctions for Caucasians also disappeared, or for whites also disappeared. So you didn't see uh, ethnic um, disparity anymore. What you saw was the term white evolved to become the universal term for all non-people of color, regardless of their social class or ethnic identity. I'm going to go ahead and, and wrap the conversation up now. Uh, there's still much more to uh, that can be said and to explore. <clears throat> and uh, I didn't even cover the 90s to present date uh, because by the 1990s, the term white had been solidified. Uh, as I said, it's, it's evolved to become a universal term for all non-people of color, regardless of social class or ethnic identity. Um, and so if you want an understanding of some of the issues of that time period or uh, more expansion on what uh, what I shared here I, I highly recommend the documentary 13th on Netflix um, that will that will cover and probably go more in depth and, and better explain uh, the things I'm trying to, to share here um, my intent here was to show how through power control and codified language uh, the term white came to be so we see that uh, from as far back as the colonial period, 
there was a separation uh, between people and that separation started as a separation of uh, power you had the elite and the poor uh, and the elite wanted to maintain power and so they found a way to create animosity amongst the poor and that was to divide them by the color of their skin uh, <clears throat> and then that uh, evolved into slavery uh, which then further drove that division and that, that distinction and, and hatred uh, for white and black uh, in order to maintain the power of the elite. Then we have the, uh, the end of slavery with the Civil War, the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, but that still doesn't end the distinction of how people are treated based on the color of their skin. Um, and so we see that there is a there is legal codified um, distinctions that make various things uh, a white thing and a thing for a for people of color. Uh, and we see that through uh, especially in Jim Crow laws uh, through black black codes and through various uh, through separate but equal with Plessy versus Ferguson and, and other um, codified legal um, mandates of the time um, and so once we get through uh, the we, we get through a couple of world wars um, and we start to see the civil rights movement evolve uh, looking for um, equality in the classroom, wanting to be able to go talk and sit down with each other uh, at the same table and fighting Jim Crow laws, uh, fighting for um, civil rights, fighting for the right to vote, you know, all these um, other things that had been denied to them. Um, we, we see that come into play and so along the way what we also start to see is we see that um, for Caucasians for people of European descent where they were once identified um, by their ethnic beginnings through the years that ethnic um, distinction begins to go away um, and then after the after the civil rights movement we start to see that um, we start to see codified language we start to see um, agendas get get pushed and promoted in a way that is not distinctively racist because you, you can't prove it by the language but the actions that follow um, are racist and create more um, more I racist ideologies such as the or reinforce scary ideologies such as the um, black man as a as a criminal right uh, and as we get through this and we go through the law and order period we go through war on crime and war on drugs uh, we 
go through these super predators and over time we start to see that that the ethnic um, identifiers for white people are starting to be removed there are no longer irish americans and italian americans um, there are, everybody just starts to become white and uh, that's what the intent of this was was to to show how through power controlled and codified language the term white came to be and the intent was also for maladjustment to call out the economic political and religious systems that are responsible for creating maintaining race uh, and dividing our country with this understanding of of whiteness and, and the systems that created it um, how do we move forward how do we dismantle the social construct called racism uh, how can we bring forth healing, justice, reconciliation, redemption. Um, how do you think we begin to build relationships in society in general? How do we rethink um, institutions now? How do we rethink the way we do things um, in a way that is encouraging and uplifting in a way that dismantles racism um, without uh, destroying the, the fabric of, of who we are as a, as a nation. Um, so I have my thoughts on it, but I'd love to hear yours. Uh, so in addition to the podcast, there's now uh, two ways that you can reach out. Uh, first is you can reach out by email. Uh, you can reach me at the Dickio podcast at gmail.com. That's D-I-C-K-I-E-O podcast, all one word, Dickio podcast at gmail.com. And we're on the gram. So uh, if you happen to be out there on, on Instagram, look up the uh, Dickio podcast and you'll see us there um, ready to, uh, to receive your words of encouragement or words of uh, dispute. Either way, um, I welcome any and all feedback because I believe that is how we grow as people. Um, and so, uh, in in closing, I do want to address something that I've seen on on social media trends, and that's you know people are saying that if you disagree with me, go ahead and defriend me now, unfriend me now, not defriend, unfriend me now. Um, and that's sad. That that's really sad. That as a uh, as just people, as humans, that we have to delete people that we don't agree with. Um, nothing happens if we only surround ourselves with homogenous thinking. Uh, we have to go outside of our circles, outside of our our comfort zones, in order to. Um, to create change so if you delete everyone who disagrees with you or you have an opinion that's different than them uh, how are you making anything any better instead I I encourage you and challenge you to um, have conversations with people that you disagree with have those difficult conversations be willing to 
sit at the table and talk with people, not um, debate, dialogue. Listen to understand, not to respond. Um, that's my encouragement for you. Uh, like I said, reach out to uh, reach out to me. You can reach out to me. Email dickyopodcast at gmail.com. Dickyopodcast is all one word. Or look me up on Instagram, dickyopodcast. Thank you for your time. I look forward to, uh, to hearing from you soon. Take care. Bye.